Hello and welcome to another episode of the Power Watts podcast. And uh, I'm glad to say today we have a very special guest for you. So we've decided to not invite Paulo to this podcast and instead we brought in professional cyclist on the Cannondale Pro Cycling team and Power Watts athlete and all around nice guy, <laughs> Mike Woods. How you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks so much for, for coming in. Uh, now, people can't see you right now, but I see you got a bandage uh, on your hand and your fingers are a little taped. Uh, w what's going on there? So right now I've got this, uh, this small cast uh, that, that kind of cuts off right, right before the wrist. And it's just splinting my three fingers because I broke my fifth, fourth, and third metacarpals at the base. It's kind of the metacar the fracture's what's called a, a boxer's fracture. So it's very similar to, to as if I, I punch somebody. I was going to ask you, I if you punch yeah, someone yeah. in the face with meta, metacarpal frapper. Exactly. Instead, like I, I sent it, instead, I ended up punching the road and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and uh, my hand didn't win. That's for sure. So so yeah. when did that happen? Um, about two and a half weeks ago, I was racing in a race in Belgium uh, called Liège-Bastogne-Liège. -Liège, one of the classics. One of the classics. I was having a really good day, feeling really good. And then with about 25K to go, I hit a, pot, I hit a pothole and just uh, flew over the bars, landed on my hand. Uh, flipped over and then landed on my back. Oof. I was really lucky though. It could have been a lot worse. I was going about 50 kilometers an hour when the when the crash happened. And uh, yeah, was that well, on a downhill? It was or? on on a descent. Uh, the conditions were were really wet, and that actually played in my favor because because of the wet, I was able to slide. And I, and it was so cold that day. It was snowing on at several points in the race. So I had like four layers on. So I didn't lose much skin, but oh, I did good. did end up fracturing the hand. Did you did you hurt your back when you hit the ground on your back? Or? Initially, I thought that was what was wor the the worst thing that was going on in my body, uh, because with the hand you can just stop using it. Whereas your back, it hurts if you're standing, you're sitting, you're lying down, you're walking. It doesn't matter, it hurts. So I thought I thought I did something pretty bad to the back. Uh, fortunately, uh, uh, my radio was positioned a bit left of the spine, and so it was all soft tissue damage. And then uh, being able to come into um, into the premier studio here and uh, work with uh, work with the B210 team, uh, work with Scotty, uh, work with Dave, uh, and work with Paulo, I was able to uh, kind of get, get back in business a lot faster. I'm on the bike already. I'm actually even able to go in a time trial position, and uh, I can even stand up and put weight on my hands on the bars at the moment. So it's, it's, oh, well. it's coming along really fast. So are you able to go outside and, like, climb a hill on your bike now, or is that asking a bit too much for you from your hand? Well... I can't break on my left side, so oh, so if no okay. one if no one pops in front of me, then <laughs> yeah. conceivably, yeah, I could uh, I can definitely do that. But my fingers are still very weak because they were in a cast. Uh, so yeah, I, I still I still can't race outside for the for no sorry ride outside for another couple of days. But the goal is to get outside soon. And uh, any idea how long before you'll be racing a bike again? Well, I'm hoping to start racing uh, June 11th. So right now we are May uh, May 11th, I believe May 10th, and. Uh, are we May tenth? I, I no no. You, I don't even know what the I, date is. To be honest with you, it shows you the lifestyle. Uh, yeah, May twelfth. Lifestyle of a pro cyclist. I lose <laughs> I lose count of day, track of days. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions about that later, actually, just so people get an idea what it's like to be a pro. But yeah, no, I'm uh, I, I'm about uh, I think I'm about three weeks out from racing. Okay. At this point, but uh, the goal, uh, like being capable of racing, but uh, the goal is to be ready for uh, June June eleventh. And what's on June eleventh? That's Tour de Swiss. Okay. Uh, yeah, race in Switzerland. Were you gonna do the Giro as part of the the team this year? Or, that that um, was the hardest part about about the crash. Uh, well, there are two really bad, uh, tough parts to deal with it with the crash. Because you know breaking bones is fine. Like I, I can handle that. But um, 
missing the opportunity at Liège when I crashed, I was feeling really good, and to get a result at a monument, a big classic like that, uh, would have meant a lot. Uh, also, I was selected for my first Grand Tour, the Giro d'Italia, oh, which was wow. supposed to start two weeks two weeks later, and uh, unfortunately, which was I a, which is a couple of days ago, uh, I think it started. Yeah, Giro, exactly. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, I wasn't able to take the start because of uh, the hand. Wow. Well, is there any other Grand Tours, do you think, on your calendar for this year? Well, or? you know, this could work out in my be- it, it, This could actually work out okay for me just because uh, there are two Grand Tours left, uh, including the Tour de France. So uh, I, it's not uh, without – it's still it's still actually within the realm of possibility that I do that, I do that race. Uh, it's definitely not a certainty. But uh, if my hand can, uh, uh, can, can take riding outside shortly, I think I may have a shot at, at being on the Tour team. Oh wow! Well, that would be that would be really really neat to see you out oh, there cool. in the tour, or, or maybe in uh, in the Spanish tour uh, as well. For sure. My, I mean, my big goal this year, like I definitely want to do Grand Tour. Um, the Vuelta is also something I'm really interested in, but my biggest goal this year is the Olympic Games. Is the Olympics? Uh, okay. Come, I come from a running background, so to me, especially compared to most cyclists, the Olympics means a lot. Uh, so you come from a running background. So let's just tell people a bit about your story. So you used to be a 1,500-meter runner and a miler, right? Like a really elite-level runner, right? Yeah, I was pretty good. I mean, I I, <laughs> I, 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 I think that might be an understatement. Pretty good. <laughs> I, 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 like, I started running when I was about 13. Well, I always ran as a kid, just like with my – it was really I, – I, I remember when I was like grade 8. No, sorry, grade 6. I, I pulled the fire alarm and got caught. And uh, – <laughs> I got, I got, I got, a lot, I got a lot of trouble, and uh, but it, I, I was a pretty good kid, so like I actually realized how bad that, how bad that action was, and and uh, my parent, my parents told me later that the principal called them and said we don't know how to punish him because he's already punishing himself enough, like he's, oh like, really, yeah, he's beside wow. himself, himself. So my dad, I guess uh, this was unbeknownst to me that they knew this, but when I came home, my dad was like, hey, let's go for a run. Oh, and like, really? Okay. Running's always been like a sort of like a, a really cathartic thing for me, like a, a big stress reliever, and uh, and uh, and then then that slowly transitioned into actual uh, uh, athletic pursuit. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've been I was really lucky to have very uh, athletic parents and, uh, and some good genes and uh, and uh, some really good guidance through high school with a with some great coaches in high school. And uh, yeah, I, I went from being a guy who who just ran occasionally to uh, to being one of the top runners in Canada in a, in a couple of years. So what were some of your best performances from your running days? And like when, when were your running days, like 2005, 2006? Like? Uh, 2006 was probably my last good year. Okay. Uh, I, started, I started around early 2000s, 2000, 2001. Uh, compet- running competitively, I followed even I followed the sport and and ran even in competitions before that. But uh, starting around 2002, I started making 2000 sorry 2003 I started making national teams and 2003 I broke the Canadian youth record for 3,000 meters. Wow. Then um, uh, two then a year later I placed seventh at the World Championships as a junior. But ju- in the, the way, 1500 in the 1500 meters. But the way uh, um, the way track and field works is Junior, junior, world juniors only happens every two years. So I was a first year junior. So unfortunately, I didn't get to kind of maximize my ability the next year. Mm-hmm. There's no world championships there. But that year, I ran the fastest time in the world for a junior in the mile, and I ran, uh, I ran, I ran, I, I became the youngest Canadian 
to break four minutes for the mile. Wow. So you did uh, 359? 357. Uh, 357? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, it's funny. I did that well, when I was... That's incredible. I did that when I was 18, but... And you think like that, you know, that's when you're 18, you think, oh, I'm going to run so much faster, but that's my all-time best. Lifetime best was when I was 18. Uh, so, and so what what happened after that that didn't allow you to continue running? Um, I... Well, uh, even the next year, I had a really good year. I, I got a top 50 world ranking in the 1500 meters. Uh, and uh, I, I, at one point, I was ranked as the, the top miler in the NCAA. Um, but I, I had a lot of, and through university, I had uh, some pretty bad guidance. Um, my coach was very, very old school. So I did a lot of miles, but we didn't focus. Like it's it's a, in stark contrast to what I, I deal with here with Paulo. It's it's uh, like here I've got this integrated support team. Um, I have uh, uh, Paulo looks at my training and takes a, such a, a scientific approach. Whereas my co my coach in university was kind of like, if you're not hurting, you're doing something wrong. Oh wow, and, so and really so, old. So school. we we do crazy miles. Uh, even as a miler. I'd be running over 100 miles a week. Really? And just yeah, every day, wow. just going to the well, and and uh, and eventually, I had good biomechanics, but uh, the the mileage, really bad diet, um, some bad guidance, kind of they all contributed to my foot uh, eventually falling apart. I I have I had what's called uh, I have what's called avascular necrosis in my navicular bone. The navicular bone's a a small bone in in your foot, and it. It's, it's one of the important ones, though. Yeah, it's notoriously slow it? healing. Okay. Uh, it's also very similar to the scaphoid in the hand, um, if anybody's broken that from cycling. Uh, it, both have very poor circulation, and if you don't really take care of them, which I didn't, I, I rushed back to competition too fast, you just keep on breaking it. It never fully heals, and it's so gone to the So you broke point. it more than once? Yeah, I've broken it three times. I have, I have two pins in the bone, and uh, um, now it's at a point where it, I, I can run recreationally, but if I race full out, uh, if I go really, really hard, it breaks again. Really, even with the pin in there. Yeah, even, I, even with two pins, it's it, it, it's never going to be the same. It's it's just it's not it's not getting that proper circulation. So does that bother you ever on the on the bike during like a long outing or anything like that? I think that's the best part. What I first found uh, to be most enjoyable about the bike is when I first started riding. I, it was something that I could do without pain. Because okay. I, I try after my first stress fracture, I, I made several attempts to to come back and running from about 2007 to all the way up until 20 uh, end of 2011. I tried coming back and kept on breaking the bone. Uh, and in that period, every time I ran, even when it seemed like the bone was kind of okay, it still there was an ache or there was something else going on because I was compensating too much. And to get on the bike and not all of a sudden, not not always be thinking, okay, what's hurting? Uh, you know, am I doing damage? Is this getting worse? To thinking like, I'm going to push myself to the top of that climb, or I'm going to try and drop this guy. It was just, it, it was a huge release. You know, like not have that kind of stress and anxiety always hanging over me. When you initially broke the bone, were you using cycling as like cross training while you're still running on your radar? Yeah. So after the first stress fracture in uh, 2007, over the summer. Uh, I, I started stealing my dad's bike just to go cross. He, he just bought a bike and got into cycling and lost a bunch like, of weight. Like a road bike? A road bike, okay. yeah. I lost a bunch of weight and was really kind of telling me how much fun he was having on the bike. And he said, yeah, you should go try it. And uh, there's a, a local ride in the Ottawa area uh, in the Gatineau Park. Oh, uh, yes. And uh, I, I, took that bike, I took the bike out. It looked like uh, the most r ridiculous recreational rider out there. <laughs> no high socks. 
looked like. A Did you have your uh, cycling short, your uh, running shorts on? No, I had bike shorts, shorts oh, okay. but, but obviously not bib shorts, yeah. right? <laughs> and I had I had a cut off t shirt and uh, and the the biggest mushroom head helmet you could find, <laughs> right? And, uh, and and went as hard as I could to the top of Fortune and back, and uh, uh, no, sorry, to the top of Champlain Lookout and back, and and was full, so gassed after, but it was like it was great because I was able to do this aerobic effort without. Uh, impacting the foot and when I started racing again uh, when I started running again that cross-country season I had the best cross-country season in my life oh, and I think okay. that had a lot to do with all the sudden I was doing you, can, you can't really run you don't really run three hours as a runner so all of a sudden I was getting this huge aerobic development over the course of the summer that really kind of translated into a lot of success in cross-country oh wow and you were running cross country because you couldn't run track because it hurt your foot. No, at, just... at Michigan, I, I ran all, I, I ran uh, three seasons: cross country, indoor track, and outdoor track. Oh, and okay. So, uh, okay. I, I I thought my foot was fully healed, and in that cross country season, I had uh, I started off great. I came uh, seventh at this national meet uh, called pre nationals. Uh, uh, yeah, had a really good race and was favored going into the Big Ten Championships, which was our conference meet. And uh, I broke my foot again at that race. Oh man! Yeah. So, so you broke your foot, then you had to kind of call it quits on running, but you kind of knew you liked cycling. Did you go right into cycling racing after that? Or? I I kind of dabbled at first because I was always trying to come back. Like I didn't give up on the dream of trying to be a good runner. Okay. Because uh, at one point I was pegged as being this guy that was going to make the Olympic final. I was going to be like Canada's next big thing, uh, and. Um, and so a lot of people told me that was my destiny and I really felt like it was my destiny. And so like I, 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 I kept on trying to come back despite everything pointing towards it wasn't going to happen kind of thing, you know? And so, uh, um, you're a very determined. Person. I was very determined. <laughs> so even when like I started riding with some friends, just I, like, cause every summer I was injured and I'd end up like having to ride as cross training. And I, I started riding with some friends and, and they convinced me to come out to, uh, some local races. And, uh, it was, it was, it, it was really fun to, and, and a good kind of competitive outlet to do those races. So what were the cycling races? Like the first couple that you did, I did OBC Grand Prix. And then um, some races in Elliott Lake, actually. I did a camping trip out in Elliott Lake, which is like northern Ontario region, and uh, did some races there. And But I, I, after doing well there, I, I, I still tried to keep on coming back. Um, and it was only, wasn't only it wasn't only until the end of 2011 I did my last 10K. It was a 10K, and I thought, you know, I'd finally gotten over the injuries. I raced this 10K, ran a, a, a decent time. Which is what? Yeah. Oh, well, it was, it, it was a pretty technical and, and hilly course. I ran uh, 30 flat. So <laughs> it, yeah. it, it wasn't like, I, I know I was capable of running much faster at the time, but for me, based off of where my fitness was, it was a good start. Uh, and I wasn't a 10 care. I was a, I was a mile. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, decent start to start to things. And uh, I broke my foot in that race. Wow. And so literally the next day I called the, the bike shop that I'd been kind of getting parts from and bikes from and uh, said, Hey, can I, can I race for your team for next year? Oh, and then they, they, they took you on and, yeah. and what was that learning curve? Like, uh, what elements of the cycling race kind of took you by surprise? That Everything, you had... everything, <laughs> everything. Like, you know, I was so ignorant to how hard it would be to make it to like an elite level. Uh, I just thought by virtue of my abilities as a runner, they would translate into immediate success in the cycling world. Uh, and 
partly because of that ignorance, I did climb really fast. Like I, I like climb up the ranks really fast. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was a huge learning curve, a lot of injuries on the way. Uh, but injuries I, I, from falling from off your bike and corners. I was a terrible bike handler. Uh, I, I didn't understand bike etiquette or tactics and found, had found myself in positions that no business being in and often crashing because of that. Wow. And so what were the steps that you took to get to the point that you are now? Like just an overview of some of the I, Initially, I think things. one of the big, the, the big things was actually just working at the cyclery, which was the bike shop that I first started at. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I started working there. A, I needed a job, but B, it was like a good opportunity to understand what a, how a bike works. And the staff there were are, are really knowledgeable and big bike fan, bike racing fans. So just picking up tidbits of knowledge from them, and then you know listening listening to the guys that were older than me, that were well not necessarily older than me because I started relatively old compared to most guys I raced with, but listening to the guys with more experience, trying to absorb as much knowledge from them as possible, and uh, I think yeah, just listening uh, that made a huge difference. So after you were able to get a after you improved your skills and you're able to get a few good results, is that how you got onto like a continental pro team or? Yeah. So the, like, I think a lot of people in the Ottawa area, I was really lucky. A lot of people in the Ottawa area recognized my ability just through, just through my running results. And so they wanted to kind of support me and, and see how far I could take cycling. So I had a lot of people in my corner right off the bat, kind of pushing me to get onto a continental team. So after only one year, uh, Riding for the cyclery-based team, I, uh, I I got on a continental team called Garneau Quebecor. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I was really lucky that first year because I had a got I had a couple of friends working at the uh, Ottawa, um, the the the, uh, the Cycling Canada Federation, Cycling Canada, uh, working at Cycling Canada, and they they really kind of enabled me to get on some national teams. And then uh, on Garneau, um, I was lucky enough to ride with a guy named Bruno Langlois, who who taught me a lot of uh, uh, valuable, he, like he, valuable lessons from a tactical perspective. Also, yelled at me all the time because <laughs> I made so many mistakes. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then um, that year, Power Watts was a sp- sponsor of Garneau Quebecois. Okay. And uh, Paulo was generous enough to uh, offer up a bunch of his coaching services, and I think I was probably the only guy who really took him up on the services. And, You're uh, a smart guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I th- he at the time he was coaching Bruno, and uh, um, yeah, I had heard a lot about Paulo's reputation, and uh, and how good of a coach he was. So I came in uh, looking to impress because I really wanted him to coach me. And uh, we had a good we had a good training session, and I put up some I think I put up some good numbers, and, <laughs> and, and then he took me on, and then uh, yeah, then Paul since then Paul's been instrumental in my 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 rapid improvement as a. From a, especially from a physiological perspective as a cyclist. And then, uh, so you started working with Paulo, you were putting out good numbers. Were you getting good race performances on, on the continental circuit? Well, actually, uh, right after I started working with Paulo, I, I started doing worse because I crashed. I crashed <laughs> and I broke my collarbone. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, it, was, it was really unfortunate. I went to Colorado to do an altitude camp and I put in some big hours on the bike, uh, got really fit was really excited for for a big result not a tour of alberta but uh the races just after tour of alberta montreal and, and quebec grand prix i was selected for the national team for those races oh nice and um there were going to be a huge opportunity for me to be seen by big teams uh and uh unfortunately at the race before tour of alberta i broke my collarbone and oh. and then i ended up spending that whole fall trying to get on teams without any success 
nobody was interested in me because I didn't have these big, big results. Um, but Paulo managed to really help me out, secure, secure, secure some uh, uh, private sponsorship uh, and ensure that I, I had kind of uh, um, a bit of financial support going into the next season. And uh, I ended up uh, on this Italian continental team that was uh, a, a crazy environment and uh, very, very, uh, I learned a lot of life, life lessons on that team. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, through them, I managed to get noticed by some bigger teams, eventually some North American-based continental teams. And uh, it snowballed from there. I got, got onto uh, a team called Five Hour Energy. And then from there, uh, Optum, which is now called Rally, Rally Cycling. They're the, considered probably the best continental team in the world. Okay. And uh, after a season with them, I, I got noticed by uh, Candale and was picked up the following year. Wow. And was it, was it your result in the Tour of Utah that uh, really yeah, got you on the... the well, uh, the Tour of Utah really kind of... Uh, signed my contract like that's like, like i'd been in talks with uh jv uh jonathan volders he's the the uh the head of uh candale pro cycling candale pro cycling team um i'd been talks with him starting off uh, at the beginning of that season because i had a really good result at uh this race called volta algarve in uh portugal uh i i managed to climb with some of the best climbers in the world richie port uh garen thomas uh ian Izagari, and uh the the world the, the world champion at the time uh michael kwiatkowski and so okay. i came fifth to those guys wow that's in, really impressive. in a stage in portugal um and uh that really spiked uh candale's interest and uh i continue to have consistent results throughout that season and talking to uh I talked to JV, but yeah, Utah kind of. Uh, I signed. I signed a week after that that result, so that definitely kind of solidified the the contract. Oh, that's amazing! I I saw the video of you with the stage win. Which stage did you win at the Tour of Utah? The, yeah, that was stage five. It was. Uh, that was like a brutal climb at the end. Uh, it was tailor made for me. Oh I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like if you if you could basically put a mile, if, um, if you it was almost like racing a mile. It was about a three to four minute effort, um, with a kick at the end. And that's that's kind of the mile in the nutshell. And uh, it seems to be that seems to be my forte in all the, all the races I do. If we if the if the race ends on a climb or ha features uh, a climb at a significant point in the race, that's about you know between two to three three to ten minutes long. That's really steep where I can stand as opposed to sit. Um, that's where I get a lot of separation from guys. Okay, and so that kind of brings up the. Uh your result in flesh alone you set the kom on the merle de huy I yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, everyone 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 cares about strava these days yeah but i mean i, mean, I, I just saw an announcement I, of that i'd uh, give, give away that kom for the for the win for a real result yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah no one's paying me for a kom unfortunately but but no uh so yeah. that climb though with that's very, another again, one that suits you well again very similar yeah at the uh, at the moment, and this is something that Paul and I work on a ton, um, my seated power still lags behind my ability to stand. And my, my standing power on climbs uh, is very, I find when I stand, I, I, I'm mimicking that running action. Mm -hmm. um, it's from a biomechanics perspective, it's very similar. And I actually just try and run on the bike when I stand. Uh, and, and that, I think, that's something that I've not just been developing for three or four years in cycling. It's something I've been developing since I started running. Yeah. So um, what we've been trying to do over the past couple of years is actually develop my seated power uh, so that it gives me an ability to recover between moments when I stand. 
and, and and so far it's it's really it's been paying dividends and every race I do I'm I'm getting better because I have a bit more of a base in that seated power department um but yeah like a race like flesh you have to stand that entire last climb because you're looking at grades of over 20% and it's it's right in my wheelhouse I I get, I get excited when I see climbs like that oh wow that's uh, that's great now the the sitting power That'll help you for, say, longer duration climbs where you kind of sit for the first part and then you'll stand for sure, right, for near, sure. near the, right near the One end. One thing I like to do a lot is I like to altern- alternate standing, si- sitting and standing on climbs. I find it offers a bit of recovery for certain muscle groups. Um, but, yeah, when you have that bigger base and seated power, then all of a sudden like you can keep a consistent power up and uh, you can provide more recovery to your standing power. And then my Achilles heel at the moment is time trialing because that's when you're all, you're seated always. Yeah. Not and only seated, but really, really bent over, really as well. bent over, uh, in a very, uh, un- uh t- typically a pretty uncomfortable position. And so we've been really trying to, trying to work on that because if I could fit, if I can figure that out and if I can get my seated power, uh, close to that standing power, I, I could, I could be a strong general class, general classification contender. Oh well, that's neat. Sounds like a good uh, thing to work towards. That's for sure. Totally. You know, let me let let's let me just ask you a couple of questions. We're talking a little bit about your training and your riding style. L- let me ask you some questions about just your general life as a pro cyclist. Uh, so, for example, like, say it's a non-race day, you have a, a training ride to do that day. Like, what does the first like thirty to sixty minutes of your day look like? My lo- my life's pretty luxurious. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I, I, like when I say I'm living the dream, I'm living the dream. Okay. Like, I, 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 right now, I currently live in Girona, Spain, oh, wow. uh, which is like a fairy tale city and it's uh, nestled in these hills, but it's like 20 minutes away from the ocean. And, and so when I wake up in the morning, I have a nice little coffee, <laughs> chat with my wife. And then uh, when, uh, when, the weather's, when the weather's warm enough, that's when I start heading outside, heading out the door for a ride. Uh, so do you ride? You you ride at like ten o'clock or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I again, this plays into the idea of like me not knowing what day it was. Like, I, there's no schedule. It's like when I'm ready to go, when the weather's ready for me, I go. You know, like so. It's pretty nice. I, I, my normally, typically, I start the ride around ten o'clock, and uh, I try and have a nice little breakfast before that. Um, what do you usually eat for breakfast? Uh, typically oatmeal, maybe a bit of protein. So I'll get, get an egg in there as well. Uh, and recently I've been having a lot of yogurt, um, in the, uh, just a bit of yogurt in the morning. I, I finding that, uh, the, that probiotic that it provides is really good for my stomach. And I had some GI issues in the past, so that's been really useful. Okay. But, uh, yeah. And then I'll go get on the bike and initially I'll, I don't, 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 I don't ride too hard for the first, uh, uh, 30 minutes to an hour. But uh, depending on what Paul is giving me, if there's some specificity, that's after that first hour is when I typically start intervals. Or if he's giving me a long ride, that's when I start ramping it up. Um, uh, I love it when he gives me the longer stuff, like the six to to eight hour range rides, because then I get to explore and and get a couple coffee stops in there and find some <laughs> cool pastry places and yeah, go along the countryside and exactly see what it's check like. out the coast. Exactly. But then like the, the, sp- the interval days, uh, th- those are the days where I, I'm most nervous about because that's, the, that's, that's tend to be the hardest part of my week is, is really, uh, really suffering in those intervals. Cause right now I, I've been working with Paula for over three years and he, he knows, uh, how hard I can actually go. So I, when I first started with him, if I did 10% below, like if I did 10%, uh, below what my true capability was he'd still be impressed whereas now he sees he's seen my best numbers and he knows uh, like okay. wh- when i'm really dogging it or when i'm like 
when I'm when I'm actually hitting what I can possibly do, and there's no hiding with the numbers. So uh, uh, some of the intervals he has to give, he gives me are, are tough, and and mentally they're they're demanding, and uh, physically they're demanding as well. So like in a typical training week, how many times will you do an intense interval session? It like really that? depends on what we're preparing for. Um, it, getting ready for stage races, you need to do. Th you, sometimes we'll have weeks where I do five interval sessions in the week. Wow! Uh, just because in a stage race, uh, you you can go every day. You're doing intervals pretty much. Uh, whereas on a single, if we're getting more ready for for like something like the World Championships, which is 260 kilometers, and it's a one day, uh, we go into a bit more uh, uh, a week where we'll do more on and off days. Okay, and uh, so it'll vary a lot like do you do you, will you do more climbing if you're getting ready for a climbing stage or do you always do a lot of climbing for your intensity like how do you do that totally uh we do like normally uh we do more climbing if we're getting ready for uh a climbing stage for sure but uh but yeah i'm a climber so that's something that we always have to work on but the climbs that we do will depend on what races I'm going into for example when we're racing Montreal Grand Prix I'll meet up with Paulo and He'll get on the moped and we'll go up uh, Cam Hood four or five, you twelve. You mean he can't times. keep up to you on the bike? What's going on? Sometimes with that he guy? can't keep up to me on the moped. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, there's, there's, I think there's one time where I, I, I managed to crack his moped for maybe like ten seconds, but then, <laughs> then, I, then it I, started to putter a little bit. Black smoke was then, coming then, out the then, back. Then I, then I blew to the moon though. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we we'll go up to the oh, Cam Hood. Amazing. We'll go to Cam Hood and we'll do you know even 14 times up the up the thing just to get ready for Montreal Montreal Grand Prix. But then if I have uh, a stage race that involves longer uh, climbs in Europe, for example, yeah, I'll go and uh, do some longer climbing as well. Uh, so let's say you've done your ride for the day. Like when your ride is done. What do you do afterwards? Like, do you have any recovery protocols that you follow, or do you do I, mobility work? And luxury like, again, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get home. My wife normally has something made up. It's oh, fantastic. Because uh, uh, she she goes and checks out the market in Spain and gets nice nice treats for me. So I come home and I have a good little meal and uh, and uh, have a nap afterwards. Uh, maybe if uh, maybe if uh, the maybe the masseuse will come over and get a massage do you get a massage every day not yeah. every day during racing i do uh from our, our our team swan years it's it's fantastic we get an hour massage every day oh wow an but, hour but yeah i'll get one around once a week and then uh after my nap i'll wake up maybe go how walk long or, do you nap for uh depends half an hour to two hours depends on how cracked i am Wow. It depends, how, on, how, depends on how long the train session was too. Yeah, I guess those long eight-hour rides must require two-hour yeah, no, nap. Yeah, no, na no nap after the eight-hour ride because that puts you to, di to dinner time. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And how many hours a night do you sleep usually? Like, uh, I try and get – like I I'm not a huge – like I, I, lo I love to – like I like sleeping, but uh, I, 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 I struggle to normally get more than eight. Okay. I get about eight every night. And then if you get that nap in the afternoon, you're kind of – pretty fresh up. afterwards yeah. yeah perfect but like I, most of my day is just oriented around recovery i try and do as little as possible and keep it as simple as possible just do you because, use like uh compression or cryotherapy yeah, or we, contrast we, we have, baths we have and stuff C, like that? Uh, we have the cep uh, compression uh, socks and i'll wear those occasionally i also have uh um some uh, compression legs that that fill com, that pulse with air so they come like basically do compression on the legs um yeah but even just doing nothing mentally and physically watching like TV and stuff, it's kind of, it's, it's not very exciting, but 
um, if you really want to maximize your recovery, it's 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 important to just kind of relax. Yeah, I guess you're mentally just as much physically you have to relax. I mean, those interval sessions, like you said, they must They're, take a lot out of you. Yeah, yeah, they take a lot out of you if you really if if you really want to hit them on the park they're even mentally they're challenging for me like i need to need to kind of mentally prep for them and i and i find I, not just after them not i'm not just physically exhausted but mentally too and so uh, what's your what's your diet like so you mentioned for breakfast you eat some oatmeal you've been experimenting with yogurt like in general do you eat like a lot of carbs a lot of protein uh... it really I, I kind of just go by feel um but i try and uh i try and have a bit of moderation in everything because uh being a climber, I need to be light. Um, so unfortunately, I can't be like Marcel Kittel and have like a cheeseburger. Not that I'm saying he has cheeseburgers after rides, but like he's a lot bigger than me. So he can, you know, he, he's a guy that can afford a couple extra kilos. Yeah. yeah. I, a watts per kg are what's most important to me. So um, I love food, but uh, when it comes to dinner, I, I need to. I, I just need to have everything in moderation. And do you have difficulty keeping your weight down, or is that a it must be uh, very bit, challenging sometimes, sometimes depend depends on part what part of the season and how close i am to race day like as i get closer to race day i find it's easier for me to keep the weight down because my motivation gets higher whereas um early on in the season it's hard for me to to sit down and just have a chicken breast and a bit of rice and a salad you know like i want to have a cheeseburger okay you know like like any procrastinator you know it's three months down the road you know like i can i'll, I'll focus on the diet tomorrow you know but uh uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think, uh, typically I'm pretty good. Is there a particular weight that if you go below that weight, then you just can't perform well if you get too light? I, I, I really haven't that? found, I really haven't found that in cycling. Um, I did find that line in, in running, okay. uh, in running, I got down to 130 pounds and that was way too light. And that's one of the things that, and how tall are you? I'm five, nine, five, nine. And one, so okay. that was one of the things that contributed to my injuries as well. I was too skinny. I wasn't absorbing, I wasn't getting enough calcium and vitamin D in my diet. Um, and, and that, that provided a lot of, uh, problems for my body. But, uh, uh, since then I've kind of had almost a fear of going too low, but I know that optimally I'm going to probably operate around 135 and 136. And I haven't really touched that yet in cycling. Norm normally when I'm really good, I'm at around 138. Okay. Uh, but I, but based off of the uh, body scans that Paul and I have done, uh, I think we both kind of know that I can get down to about 136 and be really flying. Okay. Okay. And uh, so let me ask you another question. So let's say there's a big race coming up. Uh, in a couple of days, do you start having team meetings with uh, teammates and stuff like that? And do you yeah, go for to sure. the course? And that's one thing that's a, that that really every level you go up in cycling increases dramatically. Um, on Cannondale, it's in, it's pretty incredible how much research goes into each stage, how much thought goes into selecting teams. Um, it's uh, all the directors. All the the coaches see your numbers. We have to post. We have to post what are, we're doing for our training and our, post our, our power files, post ride uh, up on uh, online to them. We have to upload it to them, and so they know how fit you are, and they know where your skill sets lie for each rider. We and we have 30 riders on the team. So there's 30 riders, and how many riders will do? Uh, Depending a on the classic. race, will be between uh, set six and nine. Six Typically, and nine. it's around eight. And in a grand tour, how many is the grand tour is nine? Nine, okay. So, um, yeah, depending on the, depending on the, depending on, uh, on the race that they'll, they'll they select a team based off of what how they think guys are going to work together, who's healthy, who's putting out big numbers, and then um, 
for our team, our directors will go drive the courses before. Sometimes they'll even fly riders in early to, to see the courses. Uh, the directors will take video of the finishing circuits or, or key moments in the race. Okay. And then when we're sitting on our team bus, we have flat screen TVs up and they put those, those, uh, video, that video up on TV. Oh, they, wow. they have weather reports. So they'll tell us where the wind's coming from. Um, it's and then we have radios when we're actually racing and they're they're telling us giving us feedback as to what when crosswinds are coming when's a turn coming up and even on our garments now we've i actually rule ride with a gpx file so i can see descents and i can see corners before they're coming up oh wow okay. all, all this information is 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 huge because uh cycling's so tactical and it's all it's so important to be well positioned and if you're not position properly going into a corner or going into a crosswind section or you don't know that a climb is going to kick up to 12 percent and when the when the graph only showed it's a seven percent average you know if you're not prepared for that um another guy can really take advantage of you and, and so all this information is is crucial to the success of a team so uh, on race morning what does your first 30 to 60 minutes look like on race morning is it like team meetings and yeah so typically we'll, we'll like have that? our we have a so again luxury like we <laughs> like our team like we have a team chef uh oh, wow. and we have a team food truck and uh so breakfast is served up we have these amazing omelets you can pick what you want we have beetroot juices and we have a ju they have a juicer so they make us lovely juices and and really good foods and we have all every condiment available to us is that's that's out there peanut butters almond butters oh, wow. you know, so we eat really well in the morning and then uh, after that we'll go on the team bus um and uh yeah we don't even have to carry our luggage our the swaniers carry our luggage for us out of the hotels like Man, yeah, it, like i said it's luxurious <laughs> yeah very luxurious. we have espresso machine on the on the bus so everyone you grab your espresso and then you sit down and the team uh directors go over uh, the race plan so they'll show the video uh of what's coming they they'll even often have recording if depending depending on what race you're doing they'll show last year's stage how it played out oh, you know okay. um and then we'll go down and talk about who's who's going well from a competition perspective you know is this a stage for Al, for Valverde or Nibali or who who should we follow to get in the break and uh, and based off of that information we 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 make a plan for how we're going to tackle the stage and so does each individual cyclist have their particular goal for that day like yeah so we'll uh, with an eight rider team you all everyone has rules and especially uh um at our level everyone's making a lot of money and they know what their job is uh so uh going into a, a race uh you're it, one or two maybe even three guys will be seen as leaders uh and they're the ones that are expected to get the 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 result at the finish and then um then after uh after uh, you have uh, other guys that are going to be tasked with protecting those leaders, whether it's getting bottles, uh, protecting them from the wind, taking their clothing, all that kind of stuff. So have you played the role of uh, helper? Yeah, yeah, and... I, yeah, because uh, in some races, like this year at Pave Asco, for example, I got sick before the race. And Pave Asco is a really good race for me. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I got sick before, and so the team wasn't 100% 
100% confident, and I wasn't 100% confident in my abilities. So my role was to support a guy named La- guy a guy named Lawson Craddock, American, okay. and he had a really good race there. And so my job was to make sure that you know if if he was feeling too hot, I'd take a jacket from him. If he was feeling too cold, oh, I'd wow. get jackets for him, I'd get bottles for him. Um, so you'd he, have to drop back to the team car and put him in your yeah. If he got a flat or had to pee and stop at the side of the road, I'd make sure that he wasn't taking wind when we got back into the race. And then at the and then the closing kilometers, my role uh, along with others was to make sure that he was well positioned so that going into a, a decisive climb, he wouldn't be starting in 50th. He'd be starting in t- like top in the top 10. Top 10. Wow. So that must be a pretty demanding day. Nonetheless. Oh, it, <laughs> you burn, it, people. A lot of people like from uh, a lot of fans. Uh, uh, just see, you know, a couple, we'll look at results sheets and see, uh, you know, uh, guys losing 20, 30, 40 minutes on a stage and and think, oh, what was he doing? You know, like that he must be really bad. But the difference between the helpers and the, and the actual leaders uh, from an ability perspective is, is pretty minimal. Everyone at the World Tour is very, very good. Uh, but the energy re- required to go back and forth to the car yeah, to take the wind for the riders, uh, yeah, exactly, substantial. You're 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 burning tons of energy, and uh, you're gutted after a day of working for a leader. So is it even? Would you say it's harder to be a leader, or it's harder to be a domestic, or they just they're different uh, type of difficulty? Different one? type of difficulties from a, a, an effort perspective. Sometimes it is easier being the leader as opposed to the 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 team worker however from a mental perspective being the leader is way harder because uh as a as a helper um there's a lot less pressure you you know what it's a lot easier to perform your role whereas if you you're a leader you're expected to get a result and that's a lot that's that's pressure that builds over the course of the race and uh yeah it's 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 tough it's a tough role to be in so during the race you mentioned that the uh the team managers are communicating with you guys over the radio about upcoming corners and uh, grades of uh, hills and, you know, the side winds and stuff like that. Do they tell you strategic points uh, as well over the radio? They say, oh, you have to attack now or, oh, slow down, wait for, for sure. this guy. For sure. We'll have our, uh, depending on what director we have, we'll have directors say, all right, boys, find a guy beside you and have a chat because, like, the next 20K is going to be really easy. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, really? Just mentally to shut off. And then and then they'll say, but in 20K, you got to start thinking about moving to the front because 5K from there, it's gonna you're going to need to be well positioned for this corner. Or... Yeah, like they, they they really give you key po- key points in the race. They'll tell you when feed zones are coming up as well. So uh, not to worry if you're they're low on water. That all the all the information is relayed, and that's why I'm a big fan of the race radios. They're 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 not not do they not only do they give you information, but they also give you uh, uh, warnings as to like whether there's some something dangerous coming up in the course. Uh, you know whether there's a really really dangerous road or a dangerous descent. So you'd think uh, racing would be a lot harder without the radios, I guess. Yeah, well, up until this year, I, I rarely did it. Okay. Uh, the only races I did before this were the Montreal Quebec Grand Prix because the level of the level you were allowed to use a race radio. All the level, all of the races below World Tour, uh, start as of before before this year, um, were you couldn't have a radio. Okay. Uh, now it's a couple levels lower. You're allowed having a race radio as well. I just think they're really good tools. Except for when you fall on them and land on your back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that could be pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, but a good thing it wasn't directly on your spine. Exactly, I mean. <laughs> exactly. And on the race radios, is it just a one-way radio, or could you communicate with other no, riders they're two, or they're managers? Two ways. They're two ways. So it, it, that's another thing that's great is if, let's say, I have a flat, I'll come on the radio and say, hey, Woods, fl- rear flat, and then pull over to the side, and that way my team's better prepared to get a rear rear wheel for me. Okay. 
And so uh, maybe switch gears a little bit here. So during one, you did the Tour Down Under this year. So that was uh, five-day stage race, seven-day stage race. Uh, it was uh, it was six days. Six days. I believe, yeah, six days. And uh, so in a stage race like that, do you sleep in a different hotel every night? And Tour uh, Down Under is one of, the, one of the nicest races you can do on the circuit because you don't. Oh, you, you don't? You stay in okay. one hotel the entire time, and that's it's fantastic. Uh, riders really like staying in the one hotel just because you don't have to pack and you don't have to uh, change hotels and, and worry that you're, the next hotel you're going to doesn't have Wi-Fi so you can't call your wife and she's oh, going to get angry yeah. at you. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, yeah. the, the, those, those, those things contribute to like your mental sanity for sure. Uh, but yeah, you'll, some stages races we do, we'll have transfers that are, you know, three to four hours on the bus and going to different race, going to different hotels. So that, that's a part of the, I mean, that's a part of the game, but, uh, uh, it is more difficult when you have the transfers. And do you have difficulty falling asleep at night or do you, have, do you have people helping you with your bags and and oh yeah it's uh, that the hardest part is uh, I, I found is when you're in the lower ranks and you're doing these transfers and then going to hotels that are like i've done i did one race where uh, we had to sh- we were six guys to a room and one of the beds was a water bed and you know like <laughs> uh, you, you know like those, those, and you were six guys in yeah the room? and there's like you know like there's no air conditioning and it's like 40 degrees you know like so like they're they're at the lower levels it's much more difficult at at the higher levels it's pretty refined we stay we typically stay at very nice hotels um and and so it is much easier to fall asleep but uh, i find now i I have the most difficulty sleeping when i i have a really good result or when i'm really fit and i'm so excited i i i have to i I have trouble falling asleep and that in that case i make sure to shut off the computer early i shut off my phone really early and uh just try and read a book and maybe take a little bit of melatonin help me kind of fall asleep yeah it must be uh, difficult with all the uh, adrenaline going through the veins for sure when i have a really good result and people are messaging me it's exciting and i i i I really appreciate the messages and i appreciate uh, how excited uh, other people are for me and that gets me excited uh and that ultimately results in me not sleeping well so i have to kind of turn (laughs) the phone off at a certain point so what are some of the results you're most proud of thus far in your cycling career uh definitely my performance at uh at uh, Utah was kind of a, a something that opened a lot of doors for me, um, but also uh, my performance at World uh, at, uh, at Tour Down Under this year, uh, placing third on two stages and finishing fifth overall, um, kind of showed me that I've got the ability to compete with the best guys in the world uh, at the world tours at the world tour level that I really kind of belong at this level, and uh, and and it shows me that you know I think there's more I, I've I've bigger opportunities and bigger results to come. Wow, and and how how has all this affected your wife? She she moved with you to Girona, yeah, and she just kind of oh she loves to, it. She's having she a loves great time. it. Okay, Ellie's my sugar mama. She uh, <laughs> sugar she, mama. <laughs> she's the one that kind of paid for everything when I first started racing. Oh wow, um, she believed in me more than I believed in myself. Like when I first started racing, uh, it, she she was the one that told me you you need to be an athlete because that's what like she 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 saw me as a, I've known her since. Uh, I was 16 and we started dating when we were uh, in our, when we were both just about, just when we were both 20. So we've been together for a long time and, uh, and uh, she, uh, she saw me as a runner and saw, saw my abilities and really believed in them. And she told me you're, you're, you're meant to be an athlete. And wow, uh, I was real supportive. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky and, guy. And I'm a lucky guy. And, 
and she was uh she's always worked uh a very she's a very successful woman and had a had, had some very very uh good jobs and uh she paid for everything when i first started so now she's getting to uh, now I'm supporting her a bit, and uh, I think she's really enjoying that. I'm enjoying that, and uh, she's just enjoying the European life. She's in Spain at the moment. Okay. Actually, sorry, Italy, and then she's coming back to join me uh, now, and we're going to go to Colorado next week to uh, to start up a training camp. And they're so both, the, all places that she loves. She's really active, really fit. So Oh, that's great. So, yeah, she gets to gets to go to these really cool places and, and – uh, drink good cups of coffee and hang out with me so it's fantastic <laughs> the, so does she go to most of the races with you yeah it's really important well uh some of the race actually races she typically doesn't um just because uh it, it is a bit of an old school environment you don't you're not allowed sleeping with your spouse in in the hotel room oh, okay you have to have a roommate you're sleeping with a teammate you're sleeping I guess, with yeah. a teammate uh it's kind of this old school mentality um so i if she comes to races I, I hardly see her. Mm. Uh, they, I, I don't know why, what that, why this attitude's like, the way it is, but you're not supposed to see your significant others. Maybe it lowers the testosterone. <laughs> yeah, level yeah, yeah. I'm sure some so, crazy theory like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So um, based off of that, uh, yeah, Ellie, Ellie, we normally just spend a lot of time together when I'm training in at training camps, and and uh, then when uh, I go racing, she she'll go and do other things. She she's very active. She runs. She she's getting into riding a bit. And uh, yeah, she she uh, she also work. She does work uh, some contract work as well. Okay, well, 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 that's great. I'm glad to hear that you're able to maintain your relationship, even though that oh, yeah. you're all over the world for, for racing me, and for training. For me, it's crucial to my success as a cyclist having her around. Um, she really keeps me grounded. And if uh, if she wasn't around, around, I don't know if I'd be I'd be homesick. Oh well, it's good to have that anchor. Uh, with you, I guess, uh, for without her a doubt, without yeah. a doubt. So we have a, maybe about ten minutes left here, and uh, I ha I got a couple questions from some listeners, so I'll ask these questions from the listeners, and we'll see what you have to say. What do you think of that? Perfect. So the first question it comes from Jenna, and she's from Montreal, and uh, what she wrote is, "I enjoy training for both cycling and running. I've done many running races and perform well in my age group." But I've never done a cycling race, and she happens to be a PowerWatts client, uh, but she, and she's thinking about racing. So what are the main differences you've noticed between running and cycling, and what elements of your running are providing, are, have been most helpful in cycling, and which ones haven't really transferred over? So I think the, the one that hasn't really, really doesn't transfer over is the, the level of risks to your body. Uh, okay. <laughs> in, in running, uh, I think one of one of the worst injuries, aside from a stress fracture sustained in a race, was I got spiked once and lost like maybe I'm gonna say, oh, like a millimeter of a milliliter of like the the most minute amount of blood possible. <laughs> okay. Whereas you know I've seen quarts of blood of mine on the road after after oh. crashes. You know like definitely the, the the crashing is not a fun part of the race and the fear factor is something that you don't really get. In cycling, all that being said, um, uh, the one thing I the one thing I love about going uh, about cycling and bike racing is that it's a lot more dynamic uh, from a racing perspective than running. You know, um, there's there's so many different courses and there's so many different uh, um, factors that go into a race that that mean you have to be more dynamic and you have to be uh, and you're gonna have more opportunities in a, in a season to have success. Um, and you're not going to be pinned into having to be one uh, type of athlete, if that makes sense. 
as in like a 1500 meter runner exactly okay like you know fit like running on the track or even road racing it's like so it's like one plus one equals two whereas like you do a, a stage race it's like looking at an algebra formula you know like there's just so many other other factors that that go into the result and i, I like tackling that it's a lot more of a it's a lot, a bit, a lot more cerebral um but I, I think the biggest uh from a physical perspective the biggest uh 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 thing that that where the two really kind of meet is climbing climbing is so similar to to doing a running race often the the duration of climbs are very similar from a to a 1500 from a 1500 to a 10k and uh the 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 lack of of a draft and the lack of uh uh respite uh are, are very similar okay and uh just in general advice for jenna here would you tell her to learn to not fall off her bike basically <laughs> yeah well <laughs> <laughs> For, if she wants to get into cycling uh, and bike racing, you know, obviously PowerWatts is an excellent place to start. Uh, doing the interval training sessions really kind of habituates you to racing. Uh, uh, I know Paul's courses often incorporate a lot of attacks and a lot of sprints, and those are uh, crucial. But yeah, the bike handling component is huge. And so uh, being able to get outside, maybe even getting a cross bike or a mountain bike, uh, uh, that's something that Frank. Francois Parisien suggested to me when I first started and something that I've used as a tool in terms of improving my bike handling skills is just like playing around in, in the in the Gatineau Park on my mountain bike and and learning how to corner better and learning speeds and and learning how to uh, to even handle a fall better. It seems a lot of top level cyclists uh, have started as mountain bikers or have done a lot of mountain biking. For sure biking. the two skills are like are very similar and and when it comes down to it mountain biking is more of a technical sport so the trend to trans to transition into road racing often is a bit easier. Okay, so there well good Th thanks for that answer. I'll thank you on behalf of Jenna. So let's move on to the next one. So the next one comes from Julio who lives from Kirkland who happens to be my father. So here's what he wants to know. He wants to know, what does it feel like to do a 200-kilometer race, like a classic or a stage in a tour? Is it all out from start to finish? Like, how hard is it? And he also wants to know, are you nervous riding so close to all those other riders? So two th those two things, like, uh, are, are all about habituation. Like, the first 200K race I did, the fir first 200K race I did was the, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Uh but now, and, and, this, and this is the same with riding in a Peloton. When I first started riding in a Peloton, I was terrible and I was so nervous. But you get used to it and you get habituated. And eventually, uh, you know, now it's, it, it feels weird when you're not in the Peloton sometimes. And, uh, like it's a part, like I, I, I like being really tight with other guys because it means I'm spending less energy. Yeah, that's I, true. I'm, dra I'm in the draft more. And yeah, it's it's scary. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit hectic. But if you understand understand that and you understand that's part of the game you can almost use it to your advantage so i kind of i kind of like that uh, as to whether we're going all out in races it really depends on the stage i, I I'm another t i'm going to mention montreal grand prix again that it's a 200k race and this past year it was the uh, by the numbers the hardest race i've ever done oh really uh, okay. it was the break ne breakaway never went and uh, for people who understand numbers, my average normalized power for five hours and 20 minutes was 320 watts. Wow. It was, it was full gas, and I was gutted at the end. Um, but that's not 
typically the case. Typically, uh, no, it's in no one's interest to not have the break go because if the break goes, then everyone gets a bit of rest. And you know, like cyclists are inherently lazy, and we actually okay. <laughs> we actually like it when the break goes early, and then you can rest. Everyone can take their pee, and everyone can be relaxed and eat food and chill. And so, in a stage race, particularly where there's not everything's riding on one day, what will happen is the break will go within the first, you know, 10 to 20 kilometers typically. And after that, even the most recreational cyclists can ride with us. It's, oh, really? It's, okay. It's that slow. For the, and that's why you see the breakaway get on TV. You get yeah, like 15, 10 minutes 10, and stuff. 12 yeah. minutes, exactly. It, they're going at a good pace, a very, very hard pace to ride in. But everyone else is just, you know, grabbing a snack, taking a pee, and chatting with their buddies. But then as the race, after that long period of just uh, relaxation, which is which can be terrible when it rains. Uh, it's actually really cold when that happens because you're not you're not you're not staying warm. But on a nice sunny day, it's fantastic to do. And then, but it, as it gets closer to the closing kilometers, and the race has to control uh, a team has to control to bring that break back. That's when it starts getting hard again, and that's when it's it's demanding. And is it like really really hard, or you like oh, a, a it, red line? The depending whole time? on the circuit, it can be if and if it's a tailwind. If it's a headwind, it's still relatively easy. But if it's a tailwind, it gets yeah, it's it, it can get really because really the drafting lucky. effect is reduced, I guess. As totally, the totally. Speeds start to go totally. up, and it's stressful. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it it goes from feeling like you're going to take forever to finish the race to blowing by 50k in what seems like five minutes. Oh wow, okay. So it's all over the map basically in terms yeah. of intensity. Yeah. Okay, good, cool. Thanks for that answer. So uh, let me ask you another question here. So this one uh, comes from Laurent from uh, Ilbazar and he was a track runner when he was younger actually I just I happen to know him he's one of my, my clients uh, and here's his question what was harder running a mile in under four minutes or your third place finish in stage five of the tour down under that's a hard question <laughs> I, I, I mean to find hard like so running a sub four minute mile like it the preparation for it's really hard and like uh, yeah, it's difficult to do, but the you're so used to that pain, and you're 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 running so objective that you know what you're capable of going into it that it's it's almost a formality, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's it's really difficult. Whereas, uh, but like you know you're gonna like you almost get to a point where you know you're gonna do it. It okay. hurts. It's but it's like kind of like. Like it's like putting your hand on a frying pan. You know it's gonna hurt, but you, you can do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, know, yeah, you yeah. just get to a point where you know it's gonna happen. Whereas like uh, at Tour Down Under, for example, I my my numbers were really good in training. I knew I was really good, but you just don't know. And that uncertainty is really like because like. And why don't you know? You don't know if you're gonna get a good result because a guy can crash in front of you, five k to the finish, yeah, or yes. you know you can get a mechanical, or it can be uh, you can just have an off day and like. You know, so, so there's so many there's so many more intangibles that mentally that's really difficult. And so like physically, it, it was just as hard as running a sub four minute mile for sure. But mentally, I found it to be that to be more difficult. Do you also find it more difficult in cycling to have to respond to attacks of other riders? Whereas I'm guessing in a mile race, you have a pace that you stick to steadily when i ran for my first sub four it was actually a kind of a tactical race um and there are tactics involved in in running at an elite level um that are uh that are difficult but um that's one thing in cycling that i kind of had to get over because when running uh you have this red line and if you go past it 
you if you go past it, uh, you're done because you have to walk and you're not gonna you're not gonna win the race. <laughs> yeah, that's for Whereas sure. Whereas in cycling, you you have you if you go past the red line, you blow up, but you stop pedaling and you're still going forward. Yeah. And then eventually you can start again. And like mentally, that's difficult because you have to you actually have to learn to go past that red line a lot to follow those attacks. I see. Okay. Cause guys are bluffing and th saying, Oh, I can go up this climb this fast for this long. And you think that if you think they really can, you're going to let them go. And it means the end of your race, but like you have to call their bluff often and go with them and, and blow up, but hope that you blow up at the same time at, as or, the or, <laughs> or a bit later than them. Okay. You know? So yeah. like that eventually it's difficult. Okay. Wow. So it seems like a very different, uh, different experience, almost uncomparable. In a yeah. Sense. Yeah. It's all like running again is a lot like time trialing. Like it's a, it's more about feathering that red line as opposed to just blowing it out of the water and then hoping you you, you have something. <laughs> you can do it again and back. again yeah, and again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let, let me ask you one last question here because we're coming up on time. Uh, so this question comes from Sabrina who lives in Dollar Days Armo and she says, asks, what do you say to yourself? when it gets really tough during a training session or race, what's your self-talk like? What's going on between your two ears? That's a good question. I mean, <laughs> when I was a runner, I used to just, uh, I remember I always had this thing that I'd tell myself with like 200 meters to go. And I just like, I I'd just say, I tell myself, um, oh, I just repeat the time I wanted, like my goal time. So I like if I was training for a sub four, I'd just be like three fifty. No, so it's three fifty nine, three fifty nine. You know, like okay. I just say that to myself, and like, and, and and that would get me through that pain. Uh now as a cyclist, like, um, you you're constantly like, I mean, you you don't want to suffer, like like and, and, like I don't enjoy pain that much, you know. But like if I can, uh, and that was the case with running too, but. Um, what what I have to tell myself constantly is you know the things I want in order to get through that pain uh, that those incentives really often get, like so like whether it's result or even like eat, eating less at the dinner table you know like like do I want that extra extra those fries or do I want to make a hundred thousand dollars more in a in a contract you know like because of a good race performance yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like. It's like I, I kind of I kind of rationalize like rationalize things and and kind of uh, weigh them like uh, if I'm really suffering in a training session uh, do I want to get give up and call it a day or do I want to win that next race that's coming up? So you keep kind of a a positive focus towards what your goals are yeah, yeah. and because uh, my competition because my competition isn't pulling out of that workout, you know. Like I and I have to look at it like that. Like, like Alberto Condor is not taking it, taking it easy on his, <laughs> yeah. his final rep because he's feeling bad. Yeah, he wants it, so he's gonna keep on pushing. You know, and so like, yeah, that pain sucks, and like I want it to end, but it, it is gonna end regardless of whether I like whether I stop now or whether I keep on when going. You get to the end. Eventually, the, the interval is gonna stop. You know, like. Wow. Well said. Good answer. Good answer. And thanks, Sabrina, for that interesting question. 
So uh, that's all the time we have, actually, uh, Mike. But I really appreciate the time that you that you spent here, and I think this would be very insightful for a lot of people to learn a bit more about the life of a pro cyclist, learn a bit more about yourself. Cool. Any uh, parting remarks uh, that you want to make uh, for our listeners? Oh well, thanks for having me on. And uh, PowerWatch has been uh, re- instrumental in my my performance as a cyclist. So it's it's uh, my pleasure to do this blog. Uh, no, should I do this podcast with you guys and and help promote the, the this great company? Oh, super. Well, thanks so much, Mike. And we wish you a quick recovery for your hand and all the best in the rest of this season for all your racing. And uh, thank you guys for listening. And we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen once again to the Power Watts podcast. So Paulo and I will be back on again soon. And until then, we hope you guys have a great day.